Hey, it's Tom. Welcome back to the Cannaboomers podcast. You know, you've probably heard that our current cannabis laws are due to our racist policies in the past. And maybe you've accepted that as a bit of unconventional wisdom. Our guest this week, Box Brown, author of Cannabis, The Illegalization of Weed in America, has dug deep into that subject and put together a really nice, readable graphic novel, although it's not not a novel, it's nonfiction, but a, a very long comic book, essentially, about Harry Anslinger, who had a decades-long obsession with making cannabis illegal in the United States. And it's a very thorough comprehensive look at this and how it came about, as well as uh, the history that brought cannabis to America and many other aspects of it. I really enjoyed our conversation. We dug deep into the culture and economics and science of cannabis, and it was very interesting to hear Box's story, including uh, the story of his arrest as a young man and how that led him to write this book many years later as sort of a catharsis. So I hope you enjoy the episode and enjoy the book. And as always, Thanks to Danny for setting us up and making us sound good. And come and see us at cannaboomerswithak.com. We've got transcripts if you don't feel like listening and lots of other good stuff. Enjoy the show. This is Let's Talk About Weed, the Cannaboomers podcast, CBD, microdosing, and all things related to medical cannabis for baby boomers. From San Diego, here's your host, Thomas J. So with us is Box Brown out of Philadelphia, who's authored Cannabis, the Illegalization of Weed in America. I read it. It's a great book. Uh, it's a new way to learn about cannabis and the history of it in this country, which a lot of us um, are unfamiliar with. So I really recommend it. Box, how did you get started on this journey? Well, on this particular book, I would say that my first interest in cannabis was not... I mean, I, you know, I was, I was curious about it when I was a teenager and ended up getting arrested for uh, possession when I was 16. Wow. Uh, yeah, uh, I was not a in any kind of a cannabis expert at the time. It was probably like the, I don't know, 10th time I ever even smoked pot like in my life. And then, uh, so then I was arrested and um, uh, it was scary. You know, they handcuff you and throw you in the back of a police car going 100 miles an hour down these little, <laughs> the one mile to the police station down these little um, suburban streets. Um, you know, they're trying to scare you. And then there's a whole, there was a whole court proceeding and I had a, I had a probation officer and I was drug tested and, um, you know, they, they had a lot of, they would say, you know, hold a lot of things over your head. You know, if you get caught, caught while you're on probation, you're going to juvenile detention center and all these different things. It, it, it left a big impression on me. Like, I don't think, I don't even know if I would be as interested in cannabis at all as an adult if that hadn't happened to me as a teenager, you know? Right. They, they made you into a criminal. Yeah. <laughs> they made me into a stoner, perhaps. I mean, yeah. uh, <laughs> because well, it just became more uh, scary, you know, uh, exciting because it was tab more taboo. Illicit, yeah. Well, one of the factoids in your book, I think you mentioned that there were uh, – in the early 80s, there were about 400,000 arrests a year in the U.S. for cannabis. Yeah. It, it still is happening in the U.S. In, in states where it's not legal in a big way. I mean, you know, we, we've gone through 83 years of prohibition where, where hundreds of thousands of people were arrested each year. Uh, it's interesting because the year that I was arrested, uh, 1996, that was the year that cannabis arrests doubled in the U.S., under Bill Clinton. So, you know, I, I got wrapped up in the, 
in the Bill Clinton war on drugs of 1996. And it's still happening. Like in New Jersey, where they have medical cannabis and they are ostensibly trying to legalize, they've had a bunch of bills try to almost get to the governor's desk, but not all the way there. And uh, they're still arresting something like 33,000 people per year in just in New Jersey for cannabis. So, you know, despite what we know about cannabis and how it's used as medicine and it's safe and all of these different things, we're still seeing people criminalized, people being stigmatized, use being stigmatized. Even in legalization laws, there's there are things that continue the stigma. For instance, in a lot of these East Coast laws that are coming up, we see uh, language in there that keeps anyone that's ever been arrested for cannabis cannot even be a bud tender in the canna- legal cannabis business, which is preposterous. I mean, imagine if there were no, if, if restaurants were illegal and then suddenly they made restaurants legal. But anybody that had been being a chef for for any amount of time, anyone with any experience was barred from legally being a chef. Yeah. It would make no sense. Well, and I think you can also make the statement that people of color are, are disproportionately large in that number of being being arrested. So this gets to one of the foundational things of your book where you, you know, we explain the origins of cannabis um, and culture sort of in India and then how it came over to Mexico. And then the whole thing in the U.S. with Harry Anslinger, who made a, a career out of demonizing cannabis. And we're <laughs> feeling those effects 75 years later. Yeah. Um, you know, if those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it, you know, what, what, what can we learn from this whole multi-decade episode? Well, it, reviewing it, looking over the history of how cannabis was treated by America, because this is an American idea. I mean, this was something that we did here. We made it illegal here and then um, forced the rest of the world to do it as well and treat this plant like contraband all over the world. So if you think about the millions of lives that have been incredibly impacted negatively by this idea that Harry Ainslinger had and, and that he pushed for in in for the for the purposes of careerism and created all these lies and narratives that people still buy into today even right. people that people that are you know pro legalization still buy into a lot of the stigma and even some of the lies that still are being perpetuated every day uh, and an incredible impact from one determined person <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean he um he really, really uh, affected a lot of people and, and in a way, you know, hurt the economy of the world. You know, um, I think the, a lot of the people that are for prohibition of cannabis are these people that are very pro anything that is going to grow the economy. And here we have a multi hundreds of billions of perhaps trillion dollar industry worldwide. It would be unknowable how big this is. And and the people and there, there's still people in power pushing against it that don't want don't want the biggest the biggest new industry imaginable in their state or in their town or in their own backyard, that type of thing. And that's not even considering hemp and everything you can make from hemp that we've denied for the same number of decades. 
Yeah. You know, the mm -hmm. farm bill passed last year and finally we're going to start being able to have hemp clothing and hempcrete and some of the other things. It's just, but, uh, you know, this is a easy to grow, plentiful, natural resource that we could take advantage of that we in a world where we're constantly running out of natural resources. Here's a renewable one that we can take advantage of in every possible way. And we're not. And then something that's good for insomnia, arthritis, anxiety, pain has never killed anyone as opposed to the opioids that they've been shoving down our throats. Um, sure. Everything in the pharmacy, if you took too much of it, would make you sick and, or possibly kill you. You know, everything over the counter, every one of them, even Tylenol, take the whole bottle and see how, see what happens. You know what I mean? Like, so we hear something with, with no, you know, no deadly side effects and it, it, they're still, even with all that we know, they're still fighting against it. I think at this point it's all money and there's people that make their money by supporting prohibition and there's people that are trying to make money on legalization for themselves, creating middlemen and red tape and all this type of stuff, unnecessary regulations and just endless stuff like this. What we really, really want to do and need to do is legalize the black market, essentially. If you want to be an importer or exporter of cannabis or a cannabis salesperson or a cannabis grower or a cannabis producer, anywhere in this country, you should be able to do that. Yeah, and the, the market has a good way of, of sorting things out. Absolutely. If people, if people want product that's tested, it'll show up and it'll be third-party tested for purity and you know pesticides and, and everything else. And they'll know exactly how much THC and all the cannabinoids are in it. Mm -hmm. um, that's how the market would handle it. If you think about the way we test food, right? This is food that we eat and ingest. You know, We don't get a molecular breakdown of every piece of lettuce that we buy. That just doesn't happen. We don't, every hamburger that we buy at a restaurant isn't tested down to the molecular level. They come in randomly and check stuff out and we are okay with that. But for some reason, cannabis, every single batch has to be tested down to the molecular level and we have to track every gram down to from seed to the patient and all these different things. It's If you did it with any other product, even alcohol, you see the way that it, that's tracked and checked and things like that. Cannabis is so overregulated. One more thing before we leave the, the whole Harry Anslinger saga, you put your finger on it in the book that racism was really the lever that he used to instigate fear of this substance and fear of other people. And there's parallels to that happening today, I think. You know, we, we still haven't gotten past that. And again, the effects are monumental. People being incarcerated, people not having access to the, a substance that can help them live better. It's just kind of astounding. Yeah. When I started working on this book, you know, these what, what we see here today where there's more people of color being arrested and put in jail for cannabis, even though use rates are the same. I'm, we're seeing that in our daily lives. But it was surprising to me, I guess, or stunning, that when I looked through the history, started researching the history of this, that that was the point from the beginning. You know, like, that's not something that happened recently because we're, you know, the courts have become racist or something like that. Like, this law was a racist law from day one, and it was there to help crack down on Mexican immigration and to 
basically control the African-American population. There was all kinds of laws like this. This is just one of them. Uh, all our vagrancy laws and things like that, laws against um, jaywalking and things like this, stuff that you could get arrested for for doing basically nothing, walking. All of this is control for control of, uh, mm. of a certain population. And, and, and if you look at a lot of our laws, they were steeped in racism from the beginning. And this especially. Yeah. I don't know that that is commonly known. You know, I encourage people to pick the book up and the way you lay it out is, is really fantastic. Thank you. You went from that very formative experience of being arrested and then hauled down the, the narrow streets to jail <laughs> uh, and turned it into something positive eventually. I mean, that percolated for quite a while. You, you've written a few books in the interim. Mm-hmm. But I, I like the graphic novel aspect to it. Um, for, for people who are reluctant readers, it's easy to pick up and kind of immerse yourself in. Yeah, um, I got into comics. You know, I, I read comics when I was, uh, you know, 12, 13, 14, and then stopped kind of doing anything for a while in my te- teens and early 20s. And then kind of got back into it later when I, I, I liked to draw a lot when I was a kid. And then I kind of quit because I wasn't really good at it or I wasn't the best in school or whatever. And I lost confidence in myself and then got back into it later just because I liked doing it. I liked sitting quietly and drawing a lot and got into making comics. And um, I found a comic called um, American Elf by James Kachalka and a a number of other um, autobiographical comics. And these were the first time I saw comics that you, where you could make a comic that was just about everyday life and not about superheroes or robots or something like that. Once I figured out you could make comics about any subject, it kind of like took off from there. And um, then I got, you know, I was doing all kinds of different stuff, but I eventually uh, did this biography of Andre the Giant because I love pro wrestling and um, <laughs> I love Andre. And uh, and that ended up being doing well. And, um, and uh, I just really like nonfiction, doing nonfiction comics. I, I like like teaching myself things and making comics is a way for me to do that. And then I, you know, then it, when it's done, you learn something. And then I got to I have a whole book to book, you know. So that's kind of how I got into this. And then I did a, a book about Tetris, the video, the history of the video game Tetris, and a, a book about comedian Andy Kaufman. Those are all really super interesting topics. And, uh, you know, you found a nice niche there where you can tell a visual story. I mean, Andre the Giant, who's not interested in that guy? He's sure. It's, I think of them kind of like documentary film where I get to do every aspect of the film, you know, write it and direct it and all of that stuff, but with no budget at all. It's just the drawings. So that's kind of how I think of them. Yeah. Well, and I was looking at the bibliography in the back of the cannabis book, and it's very well researched. I mean, you obviously dug deep into the topic. How long did that take you to kind of get to a level where you felt you were ready to go? Um, well, what happens really is that, you know, you end up, I end up collecting a lot of material and reading a lot of stuff. And then kind of thinking about it for six months. You know, that's like a long process that happens very gradually and then sometimes very intensely. And while I'm working on other things, the the book before that, that usually, uh, I'm researching the next one while I'm working on the drawing the other ones. And then I kind of write out how I see the story. And then um, while I'm working on that, I'm 
going back and researching each individual part to find more specific information, as specific information as I could find. You know, that also involves like in the Tetris book, that's calling, you know, interviewing people. And all of the all of the books involved interviews with people and stuff like that too. So it's like a journalism thing. <laughs> sure. I just heard the Tetris guy interviewed on NPR last week. Did they have some anniversary? Yeah, it was the 35th anniversary. Um, I love Alexi. I mean, he's a... I love Tetris because it was a game that was made... A, a, a piece of art that was made without any profit motive because... Alexei lived in communist Russia, and it was was not even in his in his understanding at all to sell the game. It was just to make it uh, to make something that he thought was cool, and mm-hmm. it became like this huge thing. And uh, like the purity of it is so great. And then it ended up becoming this huge commercial success and exposing Alexei to like some of the horrors of capitalism as well. Yeah, like the biggest video game of all time, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I mean, one of, I mean, it's hard to say what's the biggest and what's not, but I mean, certainly it's in the canon of video games, and at the time was like one of the biggest sellers of for Nintendo and things like that. And then he gradually came back and got the rights to it, didn't he? Or uh, yeah, they ended up he ended up getting the rights to it, and uh, you know, now since '96 or something like that, he's he's owned a piece of Tetris again. So oh. he eventually got paid, but not the big money when it was, you know, I think they sold like 80 million units or something like that. Like that's all gone. <laughs> well, it's uh, probably more addictive than cannabis, right? Sure. Oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Just to bring it back around. So uh, another thing that jumped out at me from the book was um, the story of Billie Holiday, who mm-hmm. a black woman that Harry Anslinger just had to go after. Yeah. Um, she, I guess she hit all the buttons. Yeah. Um, I mean, he hated her. He was like obsessed with her and probably in a way like in love with her. And he, he just hated black people and he hated jazz music. Um, he just saw it as like this embodiment of like evil or something like that, where, where it, it, it was like offensive to him in this perverted way. And Billie Holiday, uh, you know, like you said, she hit all these buttons. She was a woman. She was black. She was a jazz musician. She was, she went against society's norms. She was a drug user. And he, you know, used every, uh, everything in his power to make her life hell. It's, it's absurd, really. I mean, it's, it's, it's disgusting. It's awful. I mean, it's, it's, he contributed to her death. She she was arrested as she was dying of cirrhosis of the liver. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like she was being harassed constantly. Not she, not the you know, not she was she is an extreme case, but it was not uncommon for jazz musicians to be harassed in this way. Right. Uh, Louis Armstrong getting arrested while the cops are saying that telling him that they like their music, <laughs> they like his music, and that's the legacy. I mean, this is our grandparents and great-grandparents um the baby boomers grew up in the 60s and 70s and in our era was well eventually the reagan era just say no you know nancy reagan and all that stuff mm-hmm. so it was just stacked decade upon decade of these mistruths and, and outright lies that it's going to take a while to yeah i mean i think about it like the way like the way people think about um like how uh, how men aren't supposed to cry or something like that. Like um, it's these stereotypes about 
gender that are, you know, built into every single aspect of culture. And, you know, cannabis, the being a bad drug is like baked into every aspect of culture. And it was for a really, 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 really long time. Like all, all of everyone that has alive's lifetimes, you know, yeah. uh, there's very few people that were adults when cannabis was legal that are still alive, if there are any. And so like, it's, it's in every part of our culture. I mean, I read an interview with Bill Maher or it was on Howard Stern the other day. He was talking about when he was on, on his show, Politically Incorrect, that was the show on, on ABC before his HBO show. If they talked about cannabis in the nineties, they had to have somebody also come in to talk about how bad it is and say the entire, do the entire government propaganda speech. So like the fairness doctrine on the, the opposing side. Right. But there was no fairness doctrine at the time. Like they could have done whatever they wanted, but yet they still held to that for cannabis. Yeah. This mythology that was the official government line for so long. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not a binary state where you just flip and everybody recognizes that, oh, no, this is actually uh, an organic substance and we have an endocannabinoid system in our bodies, we have receptors for it. It's a, it's an, it's a legit medicine. That story needs to be told, and, and you're one of the people telling it. But how long do you think it's going to take for it to be normalized? I mean, I think it's happening extremely rapidly. I think um, there, there's certain things I feel like that, you know, the whole state-by-state state thing is so slow and, and methodical and really unfair to individual states, like especially the East Coast, we're seeing like these not New England, but like the New York, New Jersey, PA, Delaware, Maryland, this area of the country is just getting absolutely tortured with high prices. Ohio too, same thing, really, really high prices. The Midwest seems to be avoiding this in some way. New England seems to be avoiding this in some way. But then there's this whole large swath of the country that's still just getting their first medical laws now. So, but if we see movement at the federal level, like if there's descheduling, that could pull the rug out from everybody. And then we could see like Oregon passed a state law already that as soon as anything like that happens, they are going to, they, a state law says that they're allowed to import and export cannabis. So they're like set up now to be the exporter for the entire country because if it gets descheduled and it's legal one day, there will be a shortage right in the beginning. There always is. In all mm -hmm. these states where they legalize right in the beginning, there's a shortage because everybody wants to go buy it. So Oregon is set up to ship to everybody across the country. And that's what's really going to make legalization feel like a real thing. When you can order it on Amazon, when you can get anything you want at a good price from all over the country, none of these little uh, people taking over states and charging. The costs for patients in New Jersey is just out of control. It is out of control. It's like $600 an ounce. It's costing these people like one to five dollars an ounce to produce i mean when you have that much of a profit margin there's only room for corruption and so when we what we need is this big national market and you know i think we could see that that could happen quickly 
but these slow state by state things, if that's all we, if that's all we get, I mean, we're looking at 20 to 50 years. You know, it's very expensive in California. The taxes amount to probably 35%. Right. The taxes in Um, California are out of control, but the market in California is so robust that if you live in California, you can get decent prices if you shop around. You know what I mean? Whereas in Ohio, there's no shopping around. Mm -hmm. Like there's not, there's, they actually sell weed in tenths, not even eighths. They sell tenths for $70. So, wow. so that's a seven hundred dollar ounce. Jeez. You're looking at. Well, yeah, oregano doesn't go for that much. Yeah, I mean, think about it. I mean, like this is we're talking about something that, like tomatoes or something like that. Imagine if tomatoes were five thousand dollars a pound or something like that. Like, what doesn't <laughs> make sense? Yeah, we'd be growing our own for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, state by state, I think you're right. If if there is a federal move to deschedule, which there should be pretty soon, I mean, we we flirt with that. That could be the linchpin that really drives a sensible nationwide policy. Mm-hmm. I think the majority of people are behind that. It's just, can we get the politicians to recognize it? Yeah. Well, I think we got to get the right politicians in there. Yeah, make it an issue. I you think know? the people that are pro-cannabis are more popular. I mean, and it's an it's an easy – I think once politicians see how easy it is to go in and say, look, there's 70% of the people want this. And then you go in and say, all right, we're going to – I want to give it to you. That's a lot of people that are going to get behind you. And so I think a lot of politicians now are seeing dollar signs with it in these really specific ways, like ways that they can individually make the most money themselves, like enrich themselves is what I mean. Um, (laughs) Well, that's how stuff works, right? (laughs) Right. But I mean, if you think about it from a perspective of growing the economy, the way to do that by the same politician's own definition is not, is to remove regulation. And that's what increases jobs. That's what would build this business and and you'd allow a, a market to develop. And, and we'd get real prices. We'd get the best stuff would come to the would come to the top, and the worst would go out of business. All of these things that happen in the capitalist market that we live in with every other product. Um, yeah, you could talk about the science that again we have a endocannabinoid system and we have receptors and and it's a legit medicine. You can talk about the cultural backstory. You know this what happened over the last eighty years was not just or right. And you can talk about the economic impact. And all those together, it should be a slam dunk. The, the problem is there's a lot of people profiting from prohibition. There's private prison systems. There's rehab places that get that, that where people get arrested for cannabis and then get sent to rehab that they have to pay for on their own dime. So those, those companies have, have a stake in cannabis being illegal. We see a lot of police that want cannabis to be illegal because it's another tool in their toolkit. When they pull somebody over, they could say they smelled cannabis, even if there was no cannabis, you know, all of these things, they want that tool. And so when there's these powerful moneyed interests behind prohibition, that's worth more than, than um, a political someone's uh, it's worth it's worth money is literally worth more than goodwill and so so we're fighting against that too and so it's just a long seemingly endless process but you know gay marriage has passed um that was a long long process and um change can come at the national level i, I you hopefully know, it will one day 
And if you if you set aside the logical and even emotional arguments and just go with the economic, then the forces that would profit from a legal market have to outweigh the vested interests. And either the vested interests get bought off or they become the losers in this game. Right. But yeah, I think you're right. You follow the money and there's so much to be gained, even if this isn't ridiculously overpriced, it could become an economic juggernaut. Absolutely. At a regular regular prices. <laughs> like yeah. I like fifty dollar ounces would still make a ton of people preposterously rich. And you wouldn't be incarcerating people for really right. no reason. Which is saving the gov- saving government money and saving lives mm-hmm. and keeping people employed instead of in jail. Instead of that's it's what you're allowing them to make money instead of paying for them to be tortured in jail, basically. I mean like it defies all logic. Let the invisible hand work. Right. Exactly. These are the people that are all about the invisible hand of the market. And now they now they don't believe in it suddenly? Well, hopefully we're getting close to that point because it's just state by state where it's like a teeter-totter. We're at 32 states now for medical, I think 11 or 12 for quote-unquote recreational adult use. Yeah. Uh, The Illinois law was big for me. They made um, a lot of compromises that I think will work on the East Coast, and I want to see them do that. Like, for instance, the big thing – um, and in uh, Northeast that they don't want is, is home grow, which is I must have. And so in the Illinois law, it's legal to home grow for if you're a medical patient. And if you just are a recreational user and you get busted for home grow, it's like a $200 fine. So they like de facto legalized home grow. They decriminalized home grow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if that's the type of compromise that would move the levers for New York and New Jersey and PA, I feel like that is something that would, that is agreeable instead of no home grow. Because, yeah. you know, it's not just people hear home grow and they're like, oh, everybody, no one's going to grow, start growing weed it's going to be a very small part of the cannabis consumers that grow their own cannabis just like it's a small part of beer consumers that brew their own beer but the important thing with home grow is that it keeps the producers honest about pricing if someone knows how much it costs to grow an ounce of weed and you're charging seven hundred dollars for it it's not going to fly they will grow their own weed at that point you know then you'll lose the customer. Uh, the other thing that's really important with home grow is that it pushes the recreational market to try new things and do new things. If you look at the Seattle market, uh, there's no home grow and there's also like almost no craft concentrate market there. It's very mm-hmm. small. Whereas like in California and Colorado where there's home grow and people are experimenting and stuff like that, the craft concentrate market is huge. And it's like super popular, like uh, hash rosin is like enormously popular uh, in those in those places. And it's not in Seattle because of the way their laws work. And I think also the fact that there's no home grow pushing for that. I mean, there's no home producers pushing the market to do new things. Right. Innovation kind of bubbles up from, from below. Right. Really, the objection to home grow is probably coming from corporate growers who don't want competition. We're right. afraid that those interests are, are... Also, you hear the argument that home grow won't, uh, will continue the black market 
and make it easier for teens to get to get cannabis, which is preposterous because teens don't tell me a teen that's getting their their beer from a home brewer every weekend. Like that is just not happening. And tell me a, a teen that's going to a party where it's everybody's drinking homemade wine. Like that's just not happening. They're getting illicit kegs and cases of beer. They're finding somebody to buy it for them. It's not the homebrew market. That's that's. It just makes no sense to me. I mean, I mean it, when those things stop making sense, I just assume it's a moneyed interest. And growing it is not that simple. I mean, it, it's just a seed you put in the ground, you water it, and it needs sunshine. But doing it right? Yeah. To, oh, my God. You know, Forget it. I mean, listen, I've done un- unbelievable amounts of research on how to – even growing cannabis. My first tr- try doing it was awful. It did not go very well at all. It was just like total, absolute waste uh, in every way. And that's what it's like gardening. And you can't just sit down and and grow the best weed in the world and once like a house plant or like a something like that. I mean, you really need to work on this. So you know, yeah, just the idea that that home grow is going to is going to be where kids are getting their weed from is just silly. You got to be a total nerd just devoted to your plant, which is great. You're giving it compost and tea and making sure it doesn't mold and, and all that stuff. And, and again, like you say, it, the parallel is it's a lot easier to go buy a six pack than to brew it in your bathtub. Absolutely. <laughs> We've talked about deschedulization and, and states, hopefully, they're getting smarter. Maybe Illinois looked at what happened in Canada and, and Colorado and California and, and had sort of an informed process. Do you have a guess as to when when we might see deschedulization? The the thing that makes me think that descheduling might be coming sooner than than later is this bill going through with the um, federal bill banking bill that will allow banks to sell weed basically um, and allow you know all these different dispensaries to take credit cards and things like that. I don't think there shouldn't be a special carve out for the banks. I mean, there shouldn't. We shouldn't suddenly, at the federal level, be like, okay, regular people can't deal with this substance, but the banks can. So, because descheduling would solve that problem with the banks, and it would also be the fair thing to do and the right thing to do without making a special carve out just for banks. And I feel like there's people making the same argument, and that is how we could see that bank banking bill end up. You would think the banks would get behind it because, you know, there's good reasons for not allowing cartel money to be laundered through banks. But cannabis money is not like heroin money. You know, let's separate the two and say this is an agricultural enterprise, just like people growing corn or soy. They need credit. They need to be able to do transactions. Mm -hmm. And let's integrate that into the economy rather than forcing this weird sort of credit card transaction. But again, you're right. It goes back to the money. So you get the banks involved and they see that this is good for their business. Then maybe that brick gets pulled out of the wall and we're on our way. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, a, a banks get, you know, you could, you could see something like that. You see Wells Fargo is like a West coast bank, right? I mean, they're mm-hmm. an awful bank that screws over their customers constantly, but they operate across the country. And if they start seeing what this is, this is doing for their business. They, but they should just know this and be and be lobbying for descheduling now, instead of the, doing these little 
this little car out for the banks. Like, it just makes me so furious because like, I know that the cannabis companies need banks and I know that it would be helpful for them. And I know that it would eventually knock down walls, but I just hate seeing the banks getting special treatment where the people are not. Well, it's just another layer of unnecessary bureaucracy that just gums up the whole thing. The whole system. You're right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we can look forward to rapid change once that uh, descheduling happens. And like you said, you got to vote smart. You got to listen to the candidates. You got to make it an issue. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, a book like yours hopefully gets people talking. How have your sales been? Are you getting... Yeah, people always ask. I don't know. I mean, um, you don't actually find out about sales until like a year, over a year later. It's like insanely uh, long tail. I haven't heard anything from my publisher about about anything. So wow. I have no idea. They used to have a New York Times bestseller list for comics. Mm-hmm. And that's where my book, Andre the Giant, ended up. And so you had a good shot of getting on the list because it was all comics. And now uh, comics are just kind of lumped in with miscellaneous books, including like how-tos and uh, self-help books and things like that. So, I mean, uh, the week my book came out, Oprah had a new book out, which I'm sure took up most of that. <laughs> All of that money. So, um, didn't make the best seller. Good timing. Good timing. <laughs> Do you refer to it as a comic or to it as, as a graphic novel? I don't know. I always say graphic nonfiction or I say like graphic novel, but it's not really a novel because it's a nonfiction. There's like no terminology, correct terminology really. If anything, I would say graphic novel just so people understand that it's a book. But amongst myself, I always call everything I do comics. So there's no category at Amazon because a lot of people will go there and check on their sales. And- oh, perhaps. I don't know. I don't, I don't like to do that because it just makes me – I don't want to think about it. I don't like to right. think about it at all. Yeah, you don't want to end up checking that every hour. Yeah, I don't like to read the reviews. I don't like – do any of that stuff well has the book um opened doors for you have you had a lot of interviews and oh yeah i did tons and tons of media i was on um getting dug with high a few weeks ago oh yeah um which was amazing with larry charles which i who i didn't know was going to be on the show until i got there and i've been doing started doing comics for leafly recently oh yeah um so uh yeah all kinds of stuff like that my, my ultimate thing that i would like to see one day is to be a judge at a cannabis fest. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be cool. Like those, like on the voice or whatever, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so you would, uh, that would require you to sample product and stuff. Yeah. That's what I would, that's what I would love. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's put that out there. You know, the universe, uh, sometimes the universe delivers. Yeah. Well, um, I think we've had a pretty good interview here. Uh, I'm really glad we were able to get you. And I guess I'm kind of glad you got arrested so long ago. Yeah. <laughs> it was a rough few months and years, but. <laughs> so what, just, I'm curious, were you walking down the street or? Oh, uh, no, we were, we, we uh, were, it was really stupid. We were in like a little league ball field and uh, it was sitting in the dugout and a bunch of our friends were kind of like screwing around in the field. And it was like a place now that I think about it, that the, that cops just like, go every 15 minutes all night <laughs> you know like it was just like a really stupid place to go shooting fish in a barrel yeah i mean it's just like why would you go there like that's just where they would go like that's my why my, why don't you just go to the police station and <laughs> well well you were kids being kids yeah and, we just you know, didn't know i was just like well there's no houses around here 
So did did friends get nabbed with you, or yeah, my on one own? other friend did get arrested with me, and we all had to go down to the police station. There was like ten of us, but only two of us were actually arrested. The other ones just had to had their parents come pick them up. What a trauma! Yeah, it was, um, it was scary. I was scared. Well, I'm glad you were able to turn it into a positive after all these years. Yeah. And uh, again, I think the book is great. It's really easy to read, and it's chock full of the kind of history that people need to know about. I'm worried sometimes that young people will just take all this for granted and won't realize that, as you say, millions of people have had their lives really disrupted in negative ways. Yeah. And we owe those people uh, a, a debt of gratitude and we owe it to them to get this right. Yeah. I mean, like they did, the black market did everything. Like everything that we enjoy was like um, absolutely created by the black market. You know, every uh, the fact that we have these big seedless, amazing buds is because of the black market. All of their innovation, these people that were taking all this huge risk for us to enjoy, for soccer moms to get high in the 90s and stuff like that. When we were taking this huge risk, doing amazing things, you know, working at the highest level really of botany and, and, uh, development of product and all these different things and then all you know now all these corporations are kind of taking the credit for it and 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 charging thinking that they are pharmaceutical companies and charging exorbitant prices because of research and development but they didn't do any research and development the black market did it. The people that were in, in that are were jailed and are in jail still and are paid huge fines and now can't even join the legal market those are the people that made those innovations yeah I hate it when people are on third base and they think they hit a triple and they didn't. No, you didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think you're right on with it's market forces. That's what we should pay attention to. You know, ultimately, it's the economy. It's the invisible hand of mm -hmm. what people want and how you supply it. Right. A really eye-opening book. Thank you for writing it and sharing it with us. And uh, thanks for being a guest. And hopefully, we can we can get you back on again. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Let's Talk About Weed, the Cannaboomers podcast with Thomas J. For more on medicinal cannabis for baby boomers, visit us at cannaboomers.com.